Well, we're going to step right into a time of um, the Word, and so if you could do me a favor, track down a Bible, and get with me to the book of Daniel, to the book of Daniel. Um, Over the next handful of weeks, we're going to go through some of the earlier chapters in the book of Daniel, and we're hopefully going to learn from him and his companions on how to live faithfully in the midst of fearful and even chaotic times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the time of Nazi Germany. Uh, He is a personal hero of mine. I actually began reading his work uh, several years ago. Well, I guess at this point, many years ago. Um, But I I fell in love with uh, his writing and his leadership and uh, really the contribution that he offered to the church. Now, Bonhoeffer was arrested for his involvement in what was called the officer's plot. Um, He felt that his Christian convictions led him to oppose some of the um, worldview that was present in his day, and so he was arrested and then uh, eventually executed for his faith and for his involvement in this officer's plot. Now, while he was in prison, he wrote a bunch of stuff. He wrote, uh, actually, one of my favorite things that he wrote is actually... uh, it's a, it's a transcript of a wedding ceremony that he performed while he was incarcerated. And I've actually used that in premarital counseling, and it's in, uh, informed the way that I lead or officiate any weddings that I do. But he wrote a bunch of different things, letters and papers, and they were compiled, and it was uh, put together in a, in a published work called The Letters and Papers from Prison. And in one of the papers that he wrote, he was reflecting on the challenge of the moment he found himself in, and he asked a a pretty profound question. He said, has there ever been a people on the face of the earth with so little ground under their feet? People to whom every available alternative seemed equally intolerable, repugnant, and futile, and yet, without being dreamers, were able to await the, the success of their cause so quietly and confidently. He was thinking about being a Christian in the time and space that he was in, and he was just reflecting on how challenging it is and how big it felt to him. And in fact, you know, he's kind of speaking with hyperbole, but it felt like there's no group of people that have ever walked the planet who've experienced the challenges that they were experiencing in that time. But then he goes on to explain that that is the feeling of every generation at a significant turning point in human history. That's how it feels when you go through a a really profound moment in human history when you recognize that things could be changing. I I brought this this quote before us today because I feel like this moment in human history feels like one of those moments. Now, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a prophet in the true sense of the word. I I don't know what's going to happen, but this feels like a moment that we're going to look back on and it will have significant ramifications for the world that we live in. Um, going through a global pandemic, going through the social unrest, going through um, just all the different layers of turmoil and complication that are present in our day today. And I just feel like many of us might have that same sense about this, that this is a profound moment. He goes on in that same letter to describe those people, those people who were able to wait for the success of their cause so quietly and confidently And he said that the the kind of people who do that are the people who try to make their whole life an answer to the question 
and call of God. As a pastor, that is my ambition for our church. I am trying to create a people who are quietly confident in their success, who make their entire existence an answer to the question and call of God. And so we turn to the book of Daniel to find instruction there. The book of Daniel has been called by others the survival manual for the saints. And so let's read chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1 and go all the way through to verse 21. It reads like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the officials to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would please speak to us by your word. 
We're grateful, God, for the example of Daniel and his friends, and we pray, Lord, that we would become a kind of people who can live with a quiet confidence in our success, who can navigate the troubling circumstances that we find ourselves in, and we can do it in a way that glorifies you. So would you use this time, please, to shape and mold your people? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we find here in our text, we find really two main chunks. We find these terrible circumstances described in verses 1 to 7, and then we find the incredible and subtle grace of God given in verses 8 and following. So the terrible circumstances are obvious. The people of God have been defeated. They have been defeated and they're, they've been besieged. They've, they were living in their land, but then this foreign power, this foreign entity comes in and overwhelms them and defeats them. You can find that in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, their capital city, with their temple where God was worshipped, where his name was placed. And the royal palace and all of that, it is ransacked, it is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And it goes on to describe that not only the king, but also the uh, items within the temple are carried off. Look at verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Babylon, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So if there's any question here about whether or not the people of God are winners or losers, the answer is very clear. In this moment, they appear to be losers. They have been beaten, besieged, and their main items that they could look at for their confidence are now being carried away and placed in the house of other gods. It was a practice back then to kind of show defeat And to show the power of our gods versus your God, we're going to take what you consider to be so important and sacred, and we're going to show that these things are now subjected to our gods. And that's exactly what happened to the people of God in this instance. Furthermore, they take away the best and brightest of the community. The nobility and the royalty are taken away, and they are forced into being trained and assimilated into the culture of Babylon. So the nobility is co-opted into King Nebuchadnezzar's ambitions. So look at verses 3 and following. The king ordered his chief official to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This is where they're going to be appropriated into the culture of Babylon. Look at, look at what it says. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So you've got the best and the brightest now placed in a situation where they're going to have to learn to be like the Babylonians. They're going to have to learn their literature. They're going to have to learn the way that they think. They're going to be used in service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Then our heroes are introduced in verses 6 and 7. You can read about them there. It's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And one of the things that happens when they enter into this training situation of three years is they receive 
new names. So not only are they being forced to become, to assimilate into the Babylonian culture, now their identity is being marked not by their given Hebrew names, but by the names of, you know, these new Babylonian names. And so they're referred to and described there in verse 7, but those are our heroes. And so what we find in verses 1 to 7 then is this description of the terrible circumstances of the people of God. What we find then is that the people of God will sometimes go through moments of trauma, that the people of God suffer these incredible setbacks and losses. And the reason why they experience that is because they were unwilling to listen to the voice of their God. You can look at their con- the contemporary prophets like Jeremiah, and you can hear, and you can go all the way back to the beginning of the history of, pe- of the people of God, and you can find that over and over again, God tells them, you will be my people and I will be your God, but you should be certain to obey this you know, privileged relationship that we have. And if you fail to do that, and if you fail to continue to listen to my voice and my leadership, then you, though I'll place you in a promised land, and though I'll give you a temple, and though I'll set my name on you, you might actually have to leave. And it's called the exile. And this is what is happening in the time of Daniel and his friends. They have failed to listen to the voice of God. Over and over again, they failed to respond with repentance and faith. Though the prophets repeatedly told them that there was a need for them to repent and begin to practice the justice of God, uh, but instead they preferred to listen to false prophets, prophets who would tell them, no, 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 guys, we are the people of God. Look at our temple. Look at our privileged relationship that we have with God. There is no way that anything bad or tragic could ever happen to us until it did, until it did. They preferred the false teachers. And, um, and what happened then is they went into this time of punishment. Now, what we find in Daniel chapter 1 is that even though they're experiencing this difficulty and these traumatic times and these terrible circumstances, it is all under God's leadership and directive. Look at verse 2 once more. It says, the, the Lord delivered them or gave them. In fact, that phrase will show up three times in our text today. It doesn't come across as clearly in the NIV, but it is there. God gave them over into the hand of the king, and he allowed for the articles of the temple to be carried off to Babylonia and put in the treasure house of the Babylonian god. So they're experiencing this trauma and this punishment, and it's something that they can look at and say, this is something that God allowed to happen. And that actually will change the perspective of how they go through this. So they're experiencing these terrible circumstances, and it is awful. Um, I, I believe that reading Daniel helps to give us some perspective, because right now we might be thinking about how traumatic it is for us going through a pandemic, going through social unrest, going through all these different things. But as hard as it may be for us, let's just be really clear, it is not nearly as bad as being carted off into a foreign land and being forced to become something we're not and being limited in our ability to interact with God in the way that we prefer. Yes, there are inconveniences right now. As a church, there are inconveniences. Obviously, it's not ideal to feel like the best option for some of us is to stay at home and watch online. 
Yes, there are limitations on the amount of people that can gather together, and all of that is challenging and hard. Yes, it feels like every week decisions have to be made, but there's a lack of clarity of what the best course of action is. As a pastor, I feel like every decision that I'm making nowadays is scrutinized, that I can't, I can't win because a lot of people will be upset no matter what. Yes, all of that is hard, but let's just be clear, not, it is not nearly as hard as what the people of God have gone through before like Daniel and his friends. They go through these awful situations here and, and they, are, um, they are not able to do the things that they would want to do. So one of the questions that I've been wrestling with, how can we be faithful when some of the religious activities that we enjoy feel inaccessible? How can we be faithful? The story of Daniel helps us to answer that. They had no shot at going to the temple and gathering with the people of God in that large-scale sense. Were they able to worship God in that season? Absolutely. There will be times in the history of the church where gathering together is hard. Moments similar to what we're going through right now. But listen, church family, we will be okay because God is able to see us through it. There is a way to be faithful even in these frustrating times. Now, another thing that comes up in this first section is the, um, the way in which we engage with culture. You begin to see it here in the story of Daniel and his friends. One of the things that Christians often struggle with is how do we engage with culture? And the two main options that people kind of fall into is they either separate entirely and they say, look, we don't do that. We're different. So we're just going to remove ourselves from culture. We're going to kind of create our own little enclave where we do Christian things. We surround ourselves with Christians. We don't want to contaminate ourselves with some of these cultural forces. So we separate. Or another option would be to assimilate. We begin to become like the culture in which we find ourselves. The story of Daniel and his friends tells us that those aren't the only two options. To separate or assimilate, they're not the only two options, nor are they necessarily the best. There's a third way to engage with culture, and that is to deal with it redemptively. To be able to participate in it in profound and significant ways, in a way that actually points to and leads to God. Daniel and his friends have to learn the language of Babylon. They have to learn the culture of Babylon. They have to learn the wisdom of Babylon. And they do that, but they actually then become these representatives of God from the inside out. They become people who are witnessing to the living God, and they become instruments of blessing to the Babylonian culture. As we get to the end of the story today, we find them in these incredible places of power and notoriety. They are the chief officials. They are kind of the, the people that the king himself will lean on for wisdom and guidance. And they then, as believers in the living God, have an opportunity to influence, and they do. And it is for, for the good of Nebuchadnezzar, and that kingdom there. So Christians have to learn how to engage with culture right now. We can't simply separate from it. We can't simply assimilate into it. We need to be different from the inside. We need to be people who are able to be a blessing to the culture in which we find ourselves. But listen, all of that is very, very hard to do. What I'm describing right now is very challenging. We are in terrible times. And it will be hard for us as a church and as individual believers to be good at what God is calling us to do. But he will resource us 
for the task. Secondly, we find that God gives this incredible and subtle grace in verses 8 to 21. God not only gave them into the hands of the Babylonians, he also gives them what they need in that moment to be effective. So the first thing that we find is that they have a conviction to be who they are. They have a conviction to remain distinct even though they're in a new culture. So look at verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So they are being trained and assimilated into Babylonian culture, but they found one little area where they can wield their, their choice. And they leverage that then to maintain their distinctiveness. They decide that they're going to not rely on the food from the table of the king, the, the choice food and the royal wine, but instead they're going to limit their diet to very accessible and ordinary things. And they're doing that to maintain their dependence upon God. They, they want to show and remind themselves that they are dependent upon God for everything. One commentator puts it like this. They seize on one of the few areas where they can still exercise choice as an opportunity to preserve their distinctiveness. They're going to eat things that are ordinary and common um, to remind themselves that they are, they're trusting in God, that, that they're different, that they don't want to defile themselves. They don't want to so assimilate into the culture that there's no differences between them and any of the other royal court. And so we need to think through, how can we do that nowadays? How can we go through moments where it might feel like the worldview and the culture around us is shifting? And what can we do as Christians to maintain our distinctiveness? And sometimes it'll just be those smaller things, but we, we need to find ways and rhythms that we can remind ourselves of who we are, remind ourselves of the differences that we have, and also be aware that there are threats inherent with becoming like the culture in which we find ourselves. One commentator puts it like this, He's noting the challenge of these little choices that we have to make routinely. And he's comparing the choice to eat choice food and royal wine um, with the situation that'll happen later in the book of Daniel when Daniel is thrown into a den of lions. And this commentator puts it like this, we should remember that the devil is an, is an even greater danger in the world's dining rooms than in the den of lions. When we hear the sounds of the king's meal being served, when we hear the glasses clink, we should be even more on our guard than when famished lions open their mouths. There are, th there are cultural pressures right now that are trying to squeeze you into an unbelieving mold. There, there are forces at play right now that the devil is trying to use to make you look like the rest of the world. So we need to be on our guard recognizing we have to have some holy habits in place to maintain our distinctiveness? What are some things that we can do consistently? A meal is something that happens like three times a day, 21 times a week. So there is this recurring reminder when I am eating, maybe there's something that I can do to remind myself I belong to God. I'm dependent upon him. We need to look for those small little opportunities to maintain our distinctiveness. So God gives grace, and one of the graces is the resolve to be distinct. He also gives favor. Look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So not only 
does he have a conviction? Not only does Daniel have a conviction to live as a separate people, a different kind of people, but God is also giving him this grace. Uh, He's giving him this favor with the official, and he's receiving then this compassion. Um, So God is giving them exactly what they'll need for this moment. He's giving them favor. It reminds me of the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with that. Joseph was sold into slavery, and he lands in a bunch of different terrible circumstances throughout the course of his experience. He lands in Potiphar's home, but what happens there? God gave him favor, and he becomes influential in that household. He's then accused of doing something he didn't do, and he's imprisoned, but what happens there in that terrible circumstance? God again gives him favor, and he becomes something of a leader within that prison, and he receives favor and compassion from the prison ward. And then eventually he's released and he's given favor again in the courts of Egypt with Pharaoh the king, and he's able to provide for the people of God. So one of the things we need to recognize is that God is able to give us the grace of his favor no matter how terrible the circumstances might feel. He's able to give us favor and compassion in the world in which we find ourselves. And Daniel and his friends seize on this opportunity to wield their influence on that culture. So let's look at how this plays out in verses 10 and following. They want to remain distinct in their diet. So let's look at how that plays out. The official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat us in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. So what do we find here? We find them seizing on that opportunity to maintain their distinctiveness, and now they actually become a witness to the living God. They have a conviction. We want to remain who we are. We want to remind ourselves of who we are, even though we're in a new culture that threatens our very existence. But by doing that, they, they maintain that conviction in a very graceful and gentle way. In fact, Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it like this, and this is important. Daniel did not throw a religious hissy fit, blowing off about Babylonian, Babylon's heavy-handedness and insensitivity. He simply looked around for the next possible step to take. He didn't get all huffy and puffy about, man, this is unfair. We're we're being scrutinized. We're not able to be the people of God in, in this new situation. He looked around and he said, no, what can I do? What do I have influence over? I'm gonna do that well. I'm gonna be distinct in that particular way. And he has a tact about it. He's proposing an idea that's actually a pretty radical idea, but he does it in a way that is winsome and compelling. So he's looking at this guy who's saying, if I do this and it doesn't work out, I could be executed. The king could take my head. I I understand you guys want to do this. I just don't think it's going to work out for any of us. Because if he finds out that I'm not providing the food that he's given for you, 
and you become all gaunt and skinny and you become, you know, these, these people who are unserviceable to, for the king, I could lose my life. I could lose my job. I could, I could lose everything. So I don't know if that's a good idea, but Daniel proposes a plan with wisdom intact. Paul House puts it like this. This plan does not insult the king, endanger the chief official, or compromise their convictions. They're able to move forward through this moment in a quiet and gentle way, saying, here's what we'd like to do. Here's how we can remain distinct in this moment. And we're not trying to be jerks about it. And we're not trying to, you know, throw a hissy fit that things aren't going our way. We just want to be who we are. Now, I I don't see a lot of that in Christianity today. Uh, I don't see the wisdom and the tact in many Christians today. Uh, A lot of Christians today... Um, I'm a Christian, but sometimes the way Christians talk about culture today kind of annoys me, and, and it offends, and it makes us seem like we're insensitive to the moment. Paul, uh, uh, Daniel and his friends here remind us that we can have conviction, and we can have tact, and when we do that well, it actually results in mission. Here's what happens in, in their situation. They're inviting, they're inviting observation. They say, try us in this. Let us do this for 10 days. We'll, we'll drink water. We'll eat vegetables. We won't eat what the king provides, but observe us and see what happens. We serve a living God. He, he's able to provide for us. He's able to give us what we need. So watch and see what happens. And sure enough, God comes through. But we need to be a people who are living in that sort of way with this wisdom and this tact that says, look, look at us. See if there's any difference about us. Um, I want to encourage you to be praying in that direction. I, I've, been pre- I've been preaching to myself and praying about this. I want to be able to say to colleagues and to friends and to un- unbelievers, I want to be able to say, if you were to watch me over the course of the next two weeks, I think you would see a quiet confidence in God. I, I, I would invite you to observe, and I'm praying that God would help me to navigate this moment in a way that is noticeably different. Would you be able to, to say that to one of your colleagues? Watch me for 10 days and see if you notice anything different. That, that's what I think God is inviting us to do in this season, to be so committed to the things of God, so dependent upon God that the watching world would see you and they they wouldn't see this irritable Christian not getting their way, upset and, you know, just up in arms about everything that's going on in our world today, but instead they'd see somebody who has a confidence in the kingdom of God. Look at how it plays out in verses 15 and 16. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. We need to become a people whose lives are noticeably different to the watching world. Now, God gives them the grace to follow through on that plan. He also gives them the grace in this sense. He gives them this exceptional ability Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave, there's that phrase again, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. 
And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Um, So God is giving them this ability in that moment to be better than anybody else at knowing and understanding the times. He's giving them this knowledge and this understanding. He's giving Daniel a particular gift and the ability to understand visions and dreams, and that'll show up repeatedly throughout the course of the book of Daniel. But he's giving them these things that they'll need, and they are, they are excelling at them. Look at verses 18 and following. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Again, they're excelling. They're doing better than everybody else. In fact, look at verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. God has given them grace for the moment. He has helped them to excel in this cultural situation that they find themselves in. They then become the voice of reason, the voice of wisdom, the voice of God in a foreign land. They have this unique opportunity for, to represent God, and because there's so much wisdom resident within them that God has given them, they actually have a platform with the king and the ability to influence culture. Christians need to be so in tune with with God and praying that he would give us grace and wisdom for the moment, that people would want to hear our opinion. And again, I I mentioned uh, just a couple minutes ago, we're not doing a great job at that right now. A A lot of the way that I hear Christians talk about our cultural moment, it actually causes eye rolling. It doesn't commend us to the world. It causes people to kind of tune us out. And we have opinions and hot takes on everything from politics to the pandemic to, to you know, just social unrest and, you know, issues of uh, racial inequality. And we've got all these different opinions and we're happy to share them with other people. But instead of sounding like the wisdom of God, what I hear a lot of, and, and you know, I'm not just picking on us in here or us online, but what I hear a lot of is that what we're sharing is actually offensive to other people. It's not the wisdom of God. It's not commendable to others. We need to become known for the, the grace of God in us, giving us wisdom and understanding, and then the ability to share that in a way that actually invites other people to listen. Um, one, one commentator reminds us that when, when we're doing that well, it gives us a, it gives us a bigger platform. When we're living as distinct Christians in, in a hostile world, it gives us the ability to be, here's how he puts it, we can be faithful in a foreign court. We can actually influence society. Even if society moves entirely away from the things of God, if, if America becomes an entirely post-Christian culture, we want to be the kind of Christians who can still influence, who can still wield the influence of God in our society. And we can do that well if we are willing to be faithful. So how can you become a distinct believer who's beneficial to others? Christians should be praying for God's grace in this moment to reveal God to the watching world. Now here's the last part. This is the end of our section today, but I think it's significant. 
This Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this person who in verses 1 and 2 is carrying off all of the possessions of Jerusalem, he now becomes a footnote. Look at verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Wait a minute. Who's King Cyrus? I thought we were talking about Babylon, and I thought we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and I thought we were talking about the people of God being in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. But all of a sudden, it's fast-forwarding or flashing forward to many, many years ahead. And Daniel, here's all, here's all, that it's being, all that's being said here, Daniel's still there. Nebuchadnezzar is not. Daniel remains there until the first year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, many years later. Here's the point that's being made. The people of God will endure. The people of God will go through all kinds of political and social regimes, and they will come out on the other side, and we'll still be there. We'll still be God's people, no matter what is going on in the world. We can go through any season and come out realizing that we are on the side of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom will last forever. That's one of the main points of the book of Daniel. Human kingdoms rise and fall. In fact, in chapter 2 that we'll look at next week, there's a very punchy saying in there about God raising up leaders and putting them down. He puts them in place and he deposes them. But God's kingdom, he's establishing in his son, Jesus Christ. And that kingdom, though it starts out very small, it is an enduring kingdom and it will last for all eternity. So no matter what is happening in our world today, we can be confident, we can be quietly confident that we will be victorious. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about when writing from prison. He's saying there is a kind of people who are quietly confident in their success. And the reason for it is because they have entrusted themselves entirely to their king, entirely to God. Their lives are so bound up, not with just the circumstances of the day, but with the kingdom of God. So there's an election this week, as I understand it, and many people are up in arms about it. I've got great news for you. The kingdom of God will endure. The next four years will not ultimately define who we are as the people of God. But if we entrust ourselves to God's kingdom, no matter what, no matter who wins or loses, no matter what culture and society moves toward, the people of God will be absolutely okay. And therefore, that ought to inform the way that we as individual believers engage with the world. We don't have to be angsty. We don't have to be upset. We don't have to be rude. We don't have to be condemning, you know, I don't know what word I'm trying to say there, but we don't have to be jerks about it. We can just be salt of the earth people who no matter what's going on around us, we just trust our God. And we, we can actually be a benefit to society because we're engaged in a way that's redemptive. We're, we're not becoming like culture and we're not totally separating from it saying, oh, we're losing culture. No, we're redemptively engaged. We're wielding our influence in whatever environments God allows us with whatever platform God gives us to let people know that there is a God and he is reigning and we will be okay. So God is giving us everything that we need and he is placing us in this moment. So let's be his people. 
Let's represent him to a watching world. Dale Ralph Davis says, sometimes God may allow hardship to reach his people because he wants his mercy to reach beyond his people. We're going through a tough moment right now in our world. But God is, he's at, he's at the helm. He's in control. And he wants us to allow for our testimony about him to extend beyond just the people who are here or watching online. He wants us to let people know that he is a good God, worthy of our entire lives. So, God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it will last. Let's be kingdom people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would please give us what we need. We confess that in recent months and um, all too often, we try to make things happen the way that we think they should instead of looking to you. In this moment, Lord, we want to acknowledge that even the challenges of the moment, the cultural moment we find ourselves in, I mean, even that is your doing. And you're giving your people everything that they need to be faithful. So help us to pray and trust and, and help us to be who you want us to be. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, Lord. We want your church to shine bright in this moment. We want to be good news people. So help each of us to be that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.